So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians. Many people claim to receive a word from the Lord these days, and I will make such a claim today. I received a word from the Lord that I want to share with you, and I'm going to read it from Ephesians. But I say that to help you listen. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him, in him. We also have been, have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in, of, in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ, by raising him from the dead, and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves 
in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, If indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery for which ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. 
Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together, by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which in likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not give, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality, or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you are formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore look, therefore look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, 
and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their masters, their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against ruler, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, as well as on my behalf, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains so that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know about all my affairs, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. But you didn't expect me to read the whole thing. But I could not think of a better way to introduce Ephesians than for you to hear it. Imagine the readers, the church, as they heard that letter for the first time. We need to recapture a little bit of the freshness with which Scripture speaks and not let it become dull and commonplace as we read it. We, we are so privileged to have the Word of God that we can read. And so I wanted to read all of it to introduce it to you. Now with that, I want to, to, to give you some highlights from this, to point out what is Ephesians about. The, the book of Ephesians contains essential truths about your life in Christ that you need to know in order to help you walk the walk that God calls you to walk. Hopefully you picked up on some of those things. 
You, you need to know these truths so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's a good summary of Ephesians. Okay, just to kind of step through a, 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 an introduction on this. Who wrote Ephesians? Well, the book tells us. Paul the Apostle wrote this. And there's no good reason to doubt that. Some of the books of the Bible were contested initially. There's debates about who wrote them or whether they were authentic or not. But there's no debates about this epistle. From the earliest of times, we can trace back to at least the second century that the church accepted the book of Ephesians as being from Paul. Even Marcion, who was a heretic who created a different list of scripture and edited scripture that he didn't like, he accepted Paul as the author of this epistle. So if, if we needed outside evidence, we have it, but we don't because the scriptures tell us that Paul wrote this. Now, I'm going to say more about Paul next week, so I'm not going to say a whole lot about him t- today. What I want to, to, to help you as I go through this, just give you application points, is to urge you to accept what you read in the scriptures. Some people, when they read the scriptures, they read something like Paul, the apostle, they immediately doubt, well, is this really Paul? Um, was it really to the Ephesians? And they just go through doubt after doubt as they read things that are hard for them to comprehend. And so my challenge to you today is, is really just to, when you read the scriptures, accept what you have been given. And the reason we can do that is because God inspired his word. He inspired the word of God. Men wrote down the word and they wrote it not of their own accord, but the Holy Spirit moved them to write what they wrote. Now, we don't have any of those manuscripts today. So you say, well, what's the point of inspiration if we don't have any of those scriptures? Well, God so preserved his word through thousands of manuscripts. Those manuscripts are preserved for us. Scholars comb over them very carefully and have assembled a text, one in Hebrew and some Aramaic, another in Greek. They have assembled those texts And there is great confidence as to what the original actually said. And you might think, well, why didn't God preserve the original? My guess, and that's all it is, is if we had the originals, we would make idols out of them and we would build church buildings and people would flock there and and just create an idol out of those manuscripts. So God in his wisdom didn't preserve the original manuscripts, but he preserved his word nonetheless in, in a very sound way. There are so many copies that they cannot be destroyed. These have been assembled and we have great confidence in what the word of God has. Additionally, God has gifted men and probably some women too who were excellent translators. They were gifted in languages and they understood the biblical languages and they understood the native language which they needed to translate into. So you have in your hands a copy of the word of God. When you read it, you can read it and say, thus saith the Lord. Great confidence. So when you read the word, read it with faith, not with doubt. So when you have questions, then you take those questions and you go study and see how to solve the problem. When you have doubts, doubt your understanding of the scripture rather than the scriptures themselves. There's something for you to learn. There's some, there are difficult things in the scriptures. There are problems to solve. There are conundrums to try to figure out. But do it from the heart of faith and not doubt. So who wrote Ephesians? The Apostle Paul. Now where did the 
who, who were the original recipients of the, of the letter? Well, again, we're told this to the, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 tells us that. Now, following the customary format of the time, Paul is just simply writing a letter. That's why these are called epistles. Uh, Paul follows the format then. And he, the, uh, the format of the letter would be the author first and then the recipients. And that's exactly what he's doing. They would do author, recipients, and then an introduction. At the end, there'd be a conclusion in between the body. And that's exactly what we find in Ephesians. Paul is following that, um, that format. Now, uh, I'll say more about the Ephesians next week as well as we dig into to verse one. But now I just, for now, I just want you to see what Paul calls them. Saints. Now, when you gathered this morning, did you come in the door and say, oh, I'm so glad to be among the saints? Maybe maybe some of you did that. But most of us know each other well enough to know that, yeah, we're not exactly saints in practice, are we? At least I'm not. So I know you're not. Paul is speaking not of practice, but of position. And he's going to, their position in Christ. So as you you... Think about the church. Think about saints. Not the saints in practice. Now remember, just, just in summary, who were these Ephesians anyway? Well, some were Jews. Some were religious Jews, but very few of them. There was a Jewish, a Jewish synagogue there that Paul goes into and ministers to for a time until, until they just get hardened and won't listen, and then he leaves. But others of them were Greeks. They were Romans. What do Greeks and Romans do? They worshipped other gods. So Ephesians, Ephesus is the centerpiece for a major god of that region, the god. Ephesus was the center of pagan worship and a pagan worship related to magic. Ephesus was a place of magic, which meant it was a place full of demons. And God rescued these people and he now calls them saints. Because remember, the scriptures are not just Paul says, Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's judgment is he is writing to saints. The church is saints. They, they were idolaters. They were magicians. They were uh, in all sorts of pagan practices. But God rescued them out of that. So think of yourself as the Holy Spirit thinks of yourself. Not in any way in prideful sense, but understand that viewed through Christ. God views you as a saint. Everyone is a saint who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a saint, you are a saint only because of Jesus Christ. And put it in a different way, because of the gospel. Now, someone might say, well, what is the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 really is a good summary of what the gospel is. And I'll just read that. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. Does the gospel contain some things that are hard to understand or supernatural? Absolutely. These things are not explainable by science. But the scriptures declare the word of God. If you believe the word of God by faith, God will save you and make you a saint. So believe the gospel. 
before I leave that exhortation, let me warn you of what the scriptures also say. They warn us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you reject the gospel, you will find yourself in judgment, terrified in the hands of a living God. In that day, there will be no mercy because you rejected the offer of mercy that is available to you today. Today is the day to believe. Don't put that off. Procrastination is Satan's tool. Don't put it off. Believe and be saved today. So to recap, who is Ephesians written to? The church at Ephesus. Thirdly, when and where was Ephesians written? Where and when was Ephesians written? Now, dating the letter of Ephesians is a, is a bit tricky. And this is because the letter doesn't tell us. And so we have to piece together details from the scriptures in order to, to figure this out. Now, two clues within the letter helps us to know something about Paul when he wrote this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 and chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, For this reason I, for this, for this reason I Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Ephesians 4.1 also, he says this, I, the prisoner of the Lord. So in two times in this letter, he calls himself a prisoner. That is not metaphorical. That is literal. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison. Ephesians is known as one of the uh, prison epistles. Now, we have to try to figure out which imprisonment this was. And along with this letter, I would add that Paul wrote Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. So those four letters are known as Paul's prison epistles. Second Timothy, which is which was also written from prison, is not included among the prison epistles because they were separate imprisonments, different different time period. Um, but the dating and location and writing of, of these epistles largely depends on which imprisonment we understand Paul to, to be in. So According to 2 Corinthians 11.23, Paul said he had many imprisonments. So there is more than are recorded in the book of Acts for us. So we have to acknowledge that, that Paul was in prison um, multiple times. But he was uh, in prison for a lengthy period of time in the book of Acts towards the end of it. And and really, that seems to make the the best sense uh, of all the biblical data pulled together. Some people say Paul's imprisoned at Ephesus, but there's no, no Ephesus, no Ephesian imprisonment during that time. Others would say he wrote from Caesarea. Remember, he was arrested in Jerusalem, taken to Caesarea. He was in Caesarea uh, for uh, two years. But in, in Caesarea, he was not free to receive guests. He, he was, um, um, and he, he was um, imprisoned and and, and he wasn't free to receive guests. He didn't live in his own quarters. But we know from the from the Roman imprisonment that, that when Paul got there, he was able to rent his own quarters. And he had a Roman guard stationed with him. In fact, may have even been a, a chain to him at the time. And they, they took they took turns guarding Paul. But he was in his own rented quarters and people could come see him. And he preached the gospel. And in fact, we're told in Philippians that there's some of Caesar's household that has that heard the gospel through Paul's imprisonment there. So it, it, it seems best to, to place the book of Ephesians written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And it was during that imprisonment, if you remember when we just studied Philemon, it was during that Roman imprisonment where, where Onesimus encounters Paul. We don't know the details, but somehow Onesimus, the runaway slave, 
met up with Paul, heard the gospel, and was saved, and was discipled by Paul, and was being sent back to his master, Philemon, in the city of Colossae. So these the, the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written about the same time and likely sent with Tychicus to the church at Ephesus and to the church at Colossae and to Philemon, who we believe lived in uh, Colossae. So two locations, three letters. Two to churches, one to a person. Now just think about this. Now that's, as far as the timing, just, we don't know the exact timing, but somewhere between 80, 60, and 62. Um, it's probably when Paul wrote this. Now, think about how Paul thought about his imprisonment. When bad things happen to you, what's your reaction? I don't mind. I don't like it. I buck. You probably do too. You probably say, oh God, why? And we wonder why God has allowed this. Why, why does God allow difficult things in your life? You know, for, for some strange reason, we think that, that God owes us a life of pleasure and happiness and living happily ever after. But that's not the scriptural outlook at all. And that's not how Paul viewed his imprisonment. I mean, just think about Paul. Now, Paul was told he was going to go bear witness to Rome. And he was told that when, when he was in Jerusalem um, and, and Caesarea, he was told that so he didn't have to worry about his life. And he was going to go have to go bear witness in Rome. Now, but he didn't know that that bearing witness in Rome was going to involve probably another couple years in prison. And you think about it. Paul, the apostle, like, God, where's the wisdom of that? He's the apostle. He's like the apostle of the Gentiles. Like, set him free. Let him go. Let him preach. Let him visit Spain. But that wasn't God's wisdom. And God knows what is best. So when we challenge his wisdom, we're foolish. Right? I kind of say it with that way, marking ourselves. Paul never, rejo- never re- he never bucked against his imprisonments. What did he do in Philippi? He tells us. He rejoiced. And Acts tells us that as well. He was singing hymns. And the Philippian jailer came to know faith because of that. So Paul found ways to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And he did that even in Rome, even though he couldn't leave, even though he had Roman guards there. He's like, well, if you're chained to me, you're going to hear the gospel. And we don't know how many of them believe, but some of them obviously did because, because Paul tells us that in, in Philippians. Some of Caesar's household, like some of Caesar's household were sending greetings to the Philippians. So when you encounter trials, pause a minute. Think about Paul and try to respond like Paul did. Look at the sovereignty of God. Look look at what he's going to do. You, you don't know what he's going to do. Paul didn't know what, what he was going to do. Did Paul know that he was that God wanted to, to basically keep Paul in that place to preach the gospel to those that would hear him and to produce four letters during that time that would be preserved for eternity as the word of God? No, Paul didn't know that. And, and none of us are apostles, so we can't expect that kind of... of um, of good works that God produces and of our difficulties. But we do have promise of, of Romans. In Romans 8.28, God works all things for good for those who are called, who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God's going to bring good out of your difficulty. You don't have to doubt God's sovereignty or doubt his goodness. Marry those together. Know that God is sovereign and God is good. 
and he's going to bring good things out of your pain and your suffering. So when you encounter trials and circumstances that make you wonder whether God really loves you or not, go back to Ephesians. Go back to the scriptures and follow Paul's example. He later, he'll say in his, in his uh, not this epistle, but in 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. So he is someone to emulate. We can't see everything God is doing or is going to do in our lives through our suffering, but trust him. Paul trusted him. And now, though Paul had some time where he was in prison and couldn't minister anywhere, the Lord used him to produce these letters. And so we can say that though Paul is dead, yet he still speaks. His ministry lives long beyond the actual days that he was breathing here on earth. So to recap, when and where was Ephesians written? By Paul, probably somewhere around 80, 60 to 62 from Rome while he was imprisoned. Now, what was the occasion of Ephesians? Occasion means, what was the thing that kind of stirred him to write? What was the occasion of the letter of Ephesians? In other words, what prompted Paul to write the letter of Ephesians? Now, it's interesting that many of Paul's letters deal with problems, and we see this even in Colossians. For example, in Colossians, Paul wrote to deal with some kind of Christological heresy that was going on. He wrote to prevent the the Colossians from believing philosophy, being led astray from Christ by philosophy. In some of his other letters, we're told of other problems. For example, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes to help two women who are having conflict. And so that's part of the reason that he writes, to help bring unity to uh, the church in Philippi. But in Ephesians, no such warnings are given. There's no, there's no real negative thing. There's nothing that, that Paul corrects. And it's interesting that this letter has very little personal details in it. So when Paul wrote that, it's almost as if he knew that he was writing to the church beyond the church. He was writing to Ephesus, but he was also writing to the church universal. And I believe that he knew that with the other letters as well. But this letter conveys that. This letter just oods, uh, you know, doc- doctrine and, and practical information about the church universal. When I say church universal. I mean, the one that it, that exists. Everybody who believes in Christ is part of the body of Christ, no matter what location, what time they lived in. They're part of the body of Christ. That's what, what I mean by the universal. It's a, it's a letter that easily applies, readily applies to any church at any time and any location and any culture. Now, just to give you a little bit of extra, to kind of fill in some details, understand that when Paul wrote, he, he was used by the Holy Spirit to write 13 epistles. Uh, Four of those were written from what we call the prison epistles, as we talked about. But the the order that you find them in your Bible is not chronological. They're actually placed there in order of the size. So the longer letters that Paul wrote show up first. And as you read through the Pauline corpses, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. So that's just how they're organized. Um, If we were to do some kind of chronological order, it would be likely Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Colossians, um, uh, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy would be his last uh, letter. Now, if we zero in on the the prison epistles, we believe that the Colossians was written first because there's this problem in the church of Colossae. He's got that on his mind. He wants to he wants to deal with that with that burden. 
And he also writes the letter to Philemon because he's going to send uh, Onesimus back to Philemon and he wants to help bring um, a reconciliation between a master and his slave. And, and so he would write Ephesians with a clear mind. And that's why, sort of why we think that's, that was written third. Because there's, Paul doesn't deal with problems within the church or in that area. He's just focusing on teaching doctrine and practical living. And then in Philippians was written somewhere near the end of that imprisonment. And the reason we believe that is because he's very hopeful. In Philippians, he's very hopeful that he's soon going to be released. And so we believe that letter was written towards the end of his imprisonment. Now, again, just understand understand Paul's context. Where he's writing, um, he's writing to feed the church good doctrine and instruct them in practical living. So when you read the Word of God, do you read it that way? Do you read the Word of God that it's food for your soul, that it's instruction that you need about Christ and about living for Him? Uh, or, or do you do you read it on a regular basis is another way to put it. You know, we, we um, recently went through a passage talking about the how the Word of God, we desire the pure milk of the Word of God so that you may grow with respect to salvation. Hey, are, is the Word of God something that you long for? Uh, I'm not saying you always want to read the Word of God, but you know you, you've got to do it to grow. And so even when you don't feel like it, you just do it because you, you know it. That's how we should be. Or are you the type of Christian that only reads the Word of God when you have problems? Now, when you have problems, you should read the Word of God. So don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is to a steady diet, a regular diet of the Word of God is important to your spiritual health and growth. So to recap, what was the occasion of, of Ephesians? Paul writing to instruct the church uh, about really who they are in Christ and how to live as members of Christ. Um, and he wrote for that purpose. Now, what's the theme and purpose of Ephesians? I think a good summary, not a perfect one, but a good summary of Ephesians is found in Ephesians 4, verse 1, the latter part of that. He says, I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So Paul instructs both to inform us about our calling, and then he informs us on how to walk the walk, that walk in a worthy manner according to that calling. Paul unites doctrine and practical living. You might have picked up on or heard somebody else say this, that the first three chapters of Ephesians are primarily all doctrine. There actually aren't any imperatives. There's no commands in the first three chapters of Ephesians. They're, they are just what we call indicatives. They're just truths. Again and again and again. Paul is three chapters just laying down doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And then the last three chapters are where he gets very practical. It's not that they're not theological. It's just they have he launches into application. And so sometimes when we read Scripture... We read it as like, well, I just, I just, I just want to get to the practical stuff. Or sometimes people say that about sermons. You know, why do we have to talk about all that doctrine stuff? Can't you just, can't you just get to the practical stuff? Tell me how to, to be a better husband or a better wife or tell me how to get my kids to like listen or you're just, you're just interested in the day to day things. How can I relate to my awful manager? Those kind of things. But the scriptures lay down Doctrine, and there there is a reason for that. And the connection is this: that God doesn't want us just to be mindless robots. If He had wanted mindless 
robots, he would have created them a whole lot better than Elon Musk could. God chose us to be human beings who have volition, and he wants to work in us for us to do the right things, but with the right internal motivation. It's not just about the externals, is it? They think about the, the illustration of Israel. Israel does this all the time. They go through all the right external things, but all the while their heart is far from God. And in fact, Isaiah, the prophet, uh, exposed Israel's hypocritical love for God. He says, these people draw near me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their, fe- and their fear of me is in the command of men learned by rote. Think about that last verse. Their fear of me is in the command of men learned by rote. I mean, the Jews, the Israel feared God, but in just an external way that was learned by rote. It was not an internal fear of God that then leads to worship and obedience for all the right reasons. So, so Paul writes the first three chapters in doctrine, and we're going to study that just as, just as carefully as we do the practical stuff. We're going to lay down the doctrine because that's so important to your living. Um, how, there, there's this a, a, a unbreakable link between your theology and the practice of how you live. So if you downplay theology, and there's many churches that do, if you downplay theology, it's going to have an impact on how you live. There's just no way around that. So as we think about, think about Ephesians, how it's broken up, First three chapters, it's doctrine. There's praise for God and the, the blessing of redemption. There's Paul's prayer for understanding those blessings. There's God's mercy of, of making you alive in Christ. God's wisdom in, in, um, in making you alive in Christ. There's Paul's prayer for believers to be strengthened and to understand the love of Christ. Then when he gets to the practice part, we can summarize it really with the word walk. Walk in unity. Walk in holiness. Walk in love. Walk in the light. Walk in wisdom. And it's interesting. He switches the word, the metaphor, stops using walk as a, as a metaphor for like how you live. And he says, stand. When, you, when we fight, we stand. Stand firm. Stand fast. Right? So that's the spiritual warfare part in chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And then he has two verses, uh, to use the two verses to conclude. So again, understand that Paul uses half of his letter to lay down doctrine that is necessary for practical living. And you have to foster your hunger for doctrine. Doctrine can be dry if it's taught by someone who who, um, is just teaching in a scholarly fashion. But it becomes very rich when you understand it's teaching you about your God. It's teaching about who you are in Christ about the Holy Spirit's role in your life and what the Father has done and what the Son has done and what they're doing now, even now for you. The difference is uh, between dry theology and, and living theology is, is not the theology, it's, it's the person teaching it, helping you to make those connections. You know, I used to hate history. Because I only knew it, like from the school history books, you learn this date, you learn this fact, this name, and and you don't really you don't really grasp any of the people, but when you have a good historian who can who can take you back and help you understand the personal lives of the people that lived in history, 
and how the lessons they failed to make or made can help you live your life today, then, then you begin, history comes alive. Okay? So that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. When You have to, to, to dig into theology, not just to fill your head with facts, but to realize that it's going to have an implication on how you live, on, on how good of a husband you are, on how of a Christ-honoring wife you are, on, on how of a Christ-honoring child you are to your parents. That flows from your theology. So again, looking at how Ephesians organized three, three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of practical living. Now, what are some key concepts and words of Ephesians? Well, first of all, it's all about Christ. I don't know how many times we mentioned the word Jesus Christ or Christ or in him. It's all about him. We're going to learn about Christ and your, your new life in Christ and the implications of your new life in Christ, who you are and how you are to live. But also, I want you to see that a key concept flowing from Christ and our, our knowing that he is our head is the concept of unity. If unity is essential in Ephesians, and now Paul doesn't, doesn't correct any disunity like he does in Philippians, but unity is a major thrust in the book of Ephesians. First of all, the Greek word for unity is only used in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 14. The Greek word for one right, is used some 14 or 15 times. It's not always translated one into the Greek, and that's why I'm referencing, uh, it, when it's translated into English, that's why I'm referencing the, the Greek. The, the Greek preposition in is used 38 times, like in the Lord, in Christ, speaking about us. There's a, there's a Greek prefix uh, called soon that can be translated with or together, and it's combined with 14 other Greek words. They could take that prefix and put it together like we do in English. 14 times he, that Paul uses that word to emphasize together or with. Um, for example, God made us alive together with Christ. Believers are joined together. The whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies. There's just a few of the examples from both the doctrinal side and also the practical side. These unite the letter. The letter also speaks of the unity of the church. Christ is, the, is given as the head of the church. Uh, he is the glory in the church. Husbands, love your, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There are not multiple churches. There are multiple local churches. But all local churches, all true local churches are part of the church, the universal church. All the metaphors that Paul uses to speak of the church emphasize unity. Remember, a metaphor is just a word picture. It's all it is. The church is pictured as the body of Christ. Look at your body. You have many parts, but you're one person. That's the picture that God gives us of the body. The body isn't an arm way over there and a leg way over there, and they're doing different things. They are united with one head, with Christ as the head. The church is also pictured as a sanctuary or a temple in the Lord. Not multiple temples, but as the temple. And also there's the implied metaphor that the church is the bride of Christ. Christ it doesn't, it doesn't use the metaphor of multiple brides. It, we have one bride. Again, unity is a key theme in the book of Ephesians. Now, this leads us to another concept. The Lord just doesn't like put us in a pressure cooker and force us to be unified. He could do that, but he has chosen not to do that in his wisdom. That would be like an, that would be an external unity. Right? God isn't interested 
in just a formal external unity. How are you going to foster true and genuine unity? And that is through love. And so we should not be surprised that love is another major theme of Ephesians. The the reality of our unity is established in our new life in Christ. And that flows from the love of God. The love of God rescues you and draws you into unity with him. Uh, Unity is necessary as I said, unity is an outflow of love. Um, and love fosters that unity. Harold Horner in his commentary on Ephesians uh, really explains the vital connection between love and unity. I just want to quote him here. He says, love in action within the community of believers fosters unity. Unity without love is possible, but love without unity is not. Love is the central ingredient for true unity, laying the foundation for all internal and external unity, unquote. So so love is the essential ingredient for unity. And so Paul uses love multiple times. In, In the book of Ephesians, he uses both the verb and the noun forms of love. These appear over 20 times. That you might think, well, that's not, that doesn't sound like that many. But the letter speaks of love um, really one-third of all of Paul's uses of the love are found in Ephesians. And if you compare the how, like the, the statistical occurrence of love in comparison to all other Paul's letters, love appears in a statistical fashion, love appears more times in the letter of Ephesians than in any other letter. You might have thought, well, 1 Corinthians 13. Certainly that mentions it numerically like more, but we're talking that's also a longer letter. Ephesians is a relatively short letter. But as far as what type of love, the letter the letter speaks, or Ephesians speaks of God's love for humans five times, Christ's love for us three times, the believer's love for one another eleven times, and believer's love for Christ one time. So where's the emphasis? See, Paul lays down the fact that God loves us, that that Christ loves us. So that's eight times, but then 11 times the emphasis is on our love for one another. And then at the end of the letter, our love for Christ. So um, Horner in his commentary points out that the frequent occurrence of the term of love in Ephesians is just phenomenal. But it's there to build unity. Uh, some other key words we don't have time to cover, but I want you to, to note them. The Spirit. We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit, His role in our lives. He gives access to the Father. He dwells in believers. He reveals mysteries. He brings unity. He grieves at sin. He fills believers. He gives the word and enables prayer. This, the book of Ephesians is also about the church, which you undoubtedly heard. Uh, the, the church is Christ's body. It's comprised of Jews and Gentiles that are unified as one. It is built up by the Holy Spirit's, or by the Holy, by the, sorry, by the spiritual gifts of each member. The church is, is Christ's bride and is made up of many members, though one body. Then several times Paul mentions the idea of mystery, both in the, in the doctrinal section and the practical section. Uh, the book of Ephesians reveals mysteries, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the relationship between Christ and the church, and the mystery of the gospel. And then a common metaphor that's used through Ephesians is the word walk, uh, which is a, a, a metaphor for living. Paul lists negative ways of walking that we are to avoid and put off. 
And he mentions positive ways of living, of walking that we are to put on and to follow, pursue. So again, just like to leave you with some application through each of these. You've probably heard of the saying, if you don't aim at anything, you'll hit it every time. Or if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. When you walk through the doors, as you participate through the week in the lives of other believers, do you think intentionally about building unity? Christians, how many Christians make unity within their local church a significant priority of their lives? Do you think about your role in fostering unity of your local church? Many people do not. So is it any wonder that so many local churches are just eaten up with disunity? Because people don't come with the intention of being unified, of fleshing out the the unity that they really have in Christ. They're not focused and intentional on actually fleshing that unity out in the local church. And and remember that unity doesn't grow in a vacuum. It's not something forced. So it, it flows from love. Unity needs the sunshine and nutrition of love to grow. So how are you loving one another? In what ways are you regularly and sacrificially serving those in your church with the aim of building unity and spiritual maturity? And I'm speaking to a very loving church. This is not a rebuke. This is an exhortation to excel still more. It's so critical to our own spiritual walk individually, but also collectively. Is it any wonder that so many churches fail to demonstrate Christ-like love for one another because they just aren't intentional with loving each other with the, with the intention of building unity? But Madonna Bible Church must plot a different path than the average church today. We must set ourselves to glorify God in our love for one another and in our practical unity. And that is not always easy. It's really easy when you get along with people. And you agree with them. That's not a test of unity at all. The real test of unity comes when you disagree. And you might disagree strongly. How are you going to handle that? A lot of people today handle it by turning their backs, walking out the door, and never coming back. That doesn't build unity in your life or in the church. So There are times to leave a church. I'm not saying that. There certainly are times to leave. But you've got to be committed to work through the difficult times or you won't you're not going to grow in maturity as God wants you to grow to persevere through that through that difficulty so what are the key concepts and words of Ephesians unity love the Holy Spirit the church revelation of mysteries how to walk and Christ Christ the summation of all there's one more thing I want to say before we conclude how should we study the book of Ephesians how should we study? So it looks to overview the content. Right? This is more about your heart. How do you look at Ephesians? How are you going to study? First thing, study Ephesians worshipfully. Study and learn as an act of worship. A lot of churches use the word worship to refer to the music. And music is worship. I don't contest that. It should be worship. Otherwise, what are we doing? But understand that the study of God's word is also worship. 
It isn't just about listening to my voice. In fact, my voice is not all that important. You're listening for the voice of God, which is not me, which is in the scriptures. Listen as an act of worship. And, and that should lead you to study Ephesians eagerly. Study Ephesians like your spiritual growth depends upon it. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, your word is sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth. Your spiritual growth depends on how well you study and learn and practice the message of the book of Ephesians. That's not the only part of Scripture, but I'm focusing on that because we're launching a study on Ephesians. So study worshipfully. Study eagerly. And study humbly. And, and this is where I, I just have to, to exhort you as your pastor to study humbly. What do I mean by that? Study and learn Ephesians with a teachable heart that desires instruction, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Think about that. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which you often, often reference about how, how the Word of God is breathed out. God breathed down His Word. Every word is inspired, but it's done so so that we might be instructed, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. The reproof and correction, we kind of blow over those. We think, ah, instruction is good. Training, that's helpful. What about that reproof and the correction? Not so fun, is it? Right, kids? It's not fun. None of us, even as adults, don't like it. But it is very necessary for you to believe rightly and to live rightly. And I'm just telling you, Ephesians is going to step on your toes. And when it does, don't turn from it. Embrace it. And what I mean is going to step on your toes. It's going to teach us about God's calling to us in predestination. Paul does not hide predestination in the fourth chapter of the, in the 30th verse. He puts it in chapter 1. And we encounter it in verse 3. So we're going to deal with that. And so it's going to cause you to wrestle with doctrines of grace and where you're at. Don't have to believe me, but you do have to believe the Word of God. You Hold yourself accountable to the Word of God. The book of Ephesians is going to instruct us that we are spiritually dead before Christ. It's not a thing you can do when you're dead. I mean, that, that, that analogy says it all. Go to cemetery and talk to the dead people and see if they respond. That's what the analogy of Scripture uses of people without Christ. That offends people. But that's what the Word of God says. We're going to deal with that. Even your sweet, adorable little children, who I love to hear in the service, are born dead spiritually. It's going to instruct us to put off sinful living. There are sins that we enjoy. But Paul says they must not be part of our lives. We must put them off. That requires fighting. That requires believers involved in our lives helping us, confronting our sins out of love and helping us to walk paths of righteousness. That's not fun, but it's necessary. Paul is going to demand that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. Man, that is such a high standard. 
you're going to have to depend upon Christ in order to meet half that standard. But you can't just go in one ear and out the other. And you might say, oh, but God, you don't know my wife. You don't know how miserable she is and how terrible she makes me feel, how, 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 just how unkind she is. Those thoughts may come to your head if you're struggling in your marriage, but there's no exemption. Let Paul step on your toe and embrace it and ask God to help you change. Wives, the scriptures call you to submit to your husbands. That's hard sometimes, real hard in our culture. But when Paul steps on your toes, don't run from it. Embrace it. Remember, it's for your good and for God's glory. When you encounter Ephesians, when it rebukes you or corrects you, don't pridefully resist. It don't, don't say things like, like especially when we get the predestination about who God is. Don't, don't say things in your head like, like, well, my God isn't that way. Because when you do, you create God in your own image. You gotta wrestle with scripture. You're guilty of idolatry if your God isn't the way that the scripture says that God is. We must be submissive. And when we rely on our own judgment and, and think like, when we say things like, well, my God wouldn't do that. You rely on your judgment. And you're setting your judgment at a higher standard than God. You're pushing, you're suppressing the word of God and pushing it down. You're elevating your own judgment. You're putting yourself in a very dangerous position. Very dangerous. Because your judgment is, is liable to be wrong. The word of God is not. Let me tell you a story. Just, just, it just really illustrates for us how how wrong our personal judgment can be. Many years ago, there was a, an English schoolmaster, a teacher of that time, who was very beloved. Um, this is a time when boys went to that school and they resided to that school, so they got to know their teachers quite well. And this particular teacher, his name was called Puddles. I don't know if that's his real name or if that was his pet name or whatever, but this, this teacher who was beloved by the students is called Puddles. And he had a, had a distinct mannerism in how he talked, especially when he recited poems. Now, we, reciting a poem is pretty much a lost art, but there was a time when that was part of your education. You had to recite poems. So he would recite this poem, and he had a particular mannerism in how he recited this particular poem. And I don't have the audio, so I can't do that for you. But many years later, some of the older students who had graduated got together for a reunion and they wanted to honor their teacher, Puddles. And so they thought they would they would have a, an imitation contest. Who can imitate Puddles? And so they got some, some judges together and they put the judges in the audience so that people really wouldn't really know who the judges were. And the judges are going to sit where the audience at so they couldn't see. And the contestants, which were the former students, several of the former students, they were going to be behind a curtain, so nobody could see who was who. They could, people just had to, to listen, and the judges had to listen to try to figure out who had the most authentic rendition of Puddles reciting that poem, that particular poem. Okay? And wouldn't you know it, all the contestants come through, unbeknownst to the judges, Puddles 
enters the contents. He recites his own poem. And when all is said and done, the judges selected Puddles as third. Third place. Their judgment was totally wrong. But they thought they were right. And that's kind of how things go with our, in our own lives. When we rely on our own judgment instead of the word of God. We think we're right. But on many issues where we think we're right, Scripture says that's the path of death. Believe the word of God. Trust in Yahweh and his word. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will set your paths straight. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we just want to praise you for giving us the book of Ephesians. Thank you for instructing us. Thank you for caring so much about us that you will correct us, that you will rebuke us, and that you will come alongside us through your Holy Spirit to help us understand this word, to train us in righteousness and righteous living. Oh Lord, we just pray that you would just do marvelous things in this church through your word, for your glory and for our good, that you would just help us to feast on the word of God and, and not just in an intellectual way, but spiritually. Lord, may our love for one another grow out of our love for Christ and may our unity grow and may the practice of the one another's grow and our, our, our ability to walk in holiness grow. Lord, we need you to help walk us, walk with us. We need your help um, to guide us, to lead us, to help us be teachable, to help us live sacrificially and to love you more. Lord God, may the book of Ephesians help us in the end to be better worshipers of the Lord our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.